This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sridhama from the AD program. And I'm Yuling from the MMARC program. Welcome back to GSAP Conversations. This week, we listen to faculty Farzin Loftijam and Caitlin Blanchfield discuss their recently published book, Modern Management Methods, with Jesse Connick, Managing Editor of Columbia Books on Architecture in the City. During the conversation, they describe the discovery processes and methods of examination that are used in their research and documented in the book. They x-ray architect like Corbusier's building, Stuttgart's Weissenhof Silong, and the United Nations headquarters in New York City. Through x-ray analysis, the quotidian objects in the often heroically depicted architecture give a glimpse into the building's overlooked evolving life. We also gain access to previously invisible moments in the building's history. This research culminated in two exhibitions and is further theorized in their book. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Connick. I'm the managing editor at Columbia Books on Architecture in the City. I'm Caitlin Blanchfield. I'm a PhD candidate at GSAP, and I also teach history of architecture at the California College of the Arts. I'm Fazin Lotvijam. I'm an adjunct assistant professor here at Columbia, where I teach in the visual studies program. Uh, so we're here to talk about your new book, Modern Management Methods, Architecture, Historical Value, and the Electromagnetic Image. Can you tell us a bit about the book? Sure. So Modern Management Methods is a book that's come out of um, actually two research and exhibition projects we did by the same name. And what the book does is it presents the research of these projects, which is basically to use the medium of the x-ray and the archive to investigate modernist buildings, asking questions about um, ideas of historic value and preservation, um, how historical narratives are inscribed around and also within buildings and whose interests they serve. And so to kind of explore these questions, we've, we've x-rayed architecture. First, we did a project on the Weisenhof Siedlung in Stuttgart and the United Nations headquarters in New York City, um, looking for moments in the building where you can see kind of material evidence of processes of restoration that have happened there. So in the book, this, this material is also paired with um, essays by the architectural historian, um, or three architectural historians, Oscar Arnorsen, Claire Zimmerman, um, and a preface by Lucia Alay, as well as an essay by ourselves. To start at the beginning then, why x-rays? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I guess, like as Caitlin was saying, the way the project developed was, it started off as a research project, so Caitlin and I were doing a um, residency in Stuttgart and uh, we were looking to collaborate on some research and a project together and I'd been uh, doing work looking at UNESCO and its coding of value in architecture and what the logic of that was at an institutional level and uh, Caitlin was looking at UNESCO in a different way through its history and its formation and so this moment happened where uh, a Le Corbusier building was added to the UNESCO World Heritage List in Stuttgart, where we were staying. And so it seemed like a good place to start um, a conversation around a project we wanted to do. Um, and so as we started to uh, do research into the building and into the process and how it had um, entered the UNESCO World Heritage List as a serial property, um, we discovered uh, this maintenance manual while we were 
uh, interviewing the museum director. And the maintenance manual is a kind of a specification and has all these different uh, ways for the director to maintain the image of the building in some way after its renovation. And so kind of to give you like a long back story to your question, uh, as we started to find out, uh, as we started to work through the problem, how do we take this research that we were starting to form around the history of this building, uh, inscription into the UNESCO World Heritage and into its 2005 renovation, we're trying to find ways to visualize that. We're trying to find ways to find those moments in the building where the image of the building had been preserved, but its function or its performance or uh, the way it uh, started to, I don't know, deal with leaks or deal with uh, heating issues, how that had been altered in some way. And so the x-ray actually kind of came to us as a, um, you know, as a diagnostic tool in some sense, but also as a really interesting way to start to produce an, Im um, an image of this work and to produce an exhibition around it. Alongside the x-rays, the book includes a series of documents. Uh, can you explain what those are and why you chose to include them as well? Um, yeah, so as far as I'm just saying, this project in many ways, um, sort of, well, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people are like, what did you find with these x-rays? Um, and in many ways, I feel like that question is also really well suited to sort of like the archival material as well. And so in many ways, the project, I feel like, started with this discovery of the maintenance manual that Farzan just mentioned, which is a book that um, the architects in charge of the renovation and the museum's director in Weisenhof use to, to kind of maintain the building through a best practice standard that they kind of invented through their local connections and just deciding kind of materials to use in Stuttgart that then became this baseline for UNESCO. Um, and so we were really fascinated by this like kind of thick binder full of paint samples and like instructions for when you, you know, turn on the irrigation for like the same plant species that Lake Corbusier planted. And, um, you know, they had to remix the paint to look exactly the same. Um, so we kind of used this as our lead like through the building. So the book also includes, you know, actually copies of all of this material, which was not considered like an archive for the museum. It's, you know, just something that's very much a quotidian object of daily use. So in the case of Weisenhof, it was really about like establishing this as an archive and kind of thinking about um, the bureaucratic processes that UNESCO puts in place that are actually dependent on something that seems sort of ad hoc, like this collection of, um, you know, just kind of like emails and stuff that have been printed out. So kind of turning this object into an archive. And then in the UN, we're actually working with a more kind of official archive, I guess, which is the archive of their capital master plan, which is the renovation of the UN building that was um, completed in 2014. Um, but that kind of started in 2002. And so there we were more interested in how all of these kind of questions about security, because this renovation was very much about securitizing the building after 9-11. Um, so there are all these kind of questions about global governance and you know what it meant for the UN to operate as the UN in that historic moment, you know, in the early 2000s, post 9-11, after these bombings in Baghdad of a UN facility there, it was very much about like how to fortify the building, but also keep this image of transparency um, that the architecture was initially 
um, you know, so lauded for. So within this larger bureaucratic institution, how do these kind of more, I guess, meta-level conversations about security, fortification, access, all start to actually make their way into architecture. Um, and so there it was, you know, actually going through this, this archive and being like, okay, this is when the blast-proof glass got delivered on this day and we can like see this memo that's sent out. Um, this is like a PowerPoint presentation that was given to the Department of Homeland Security to get more mm. funding for this um, like blast-proofing fortification of a conference room that's over FDR Drive. Um, so then finding these moments in which, you know, these kind of like conversations at the level of Homeland Security subcommittee then kind of become architecture. And just to kind of like add to what Caitlin was saying, like in a sense, you know, the project is called Modern Management Methods. So we're somehow attempting to understand that through uh, an analysis of two buildings and the institutions that surround them and the documents that surround them and uh, somehow locating those moments in the archive, like the moments where there's some correspondence between different experts about how to detail a specific facade or what's going to be delivered. And the x-rays also allowed us to locate those moments in the building. So somehow the exhibition, um, in a sense, started to form a correlation between all those moments in the history of the building, in the history of the institution, in, in the archive and in the building. Um, and in the book as well, that correlation also starts to occur through, through an index that um, the graphic designers and TWTF um, spend a long time trying to you know, find a way to put a lot of information um, in relation with each other. I'm interested in the pairing of x-rays and archives in terms of historic preservation. Like, would a perfect archive make the x-rays redundant? And like, what are the ways the two media repeat each other, but also what are the ways they work as complements? I think it's a good, tough question. And like, maybe we could add like a few more things that are paired into the mix. And, and so we were always talking about like the exhibition itself is sort of a medium of you know, modern architecture in a sense, the architectural exhibition. And, and so there were all these things were kind of working together in some way. And so I'm not sure if like a really good archive would make the x-ray redundant or not. In a sense, part of, it wasn't, you know, like the x-ray for us wasn't just a diagnostic tool or an analytical method. In a sense, the project was also opening up the x-ray itself to um, other potential uses in some way. And, and so we weren't taking small x-rays, we were taking large format, high resolution x-rays, and to do that in a portable way on site was actually technically and logistically very challenging. And we had to uh, invent novel methods to be able to do that and source uh, equipment and technical expertise in multiple um, contexts to be able to do that. And so for us, I think it was a really, you know, it was a comparative analysis or it was a comparative project in the sense we had to put uh, moments in the history, as I kind of said, moments in the history of the institution, moments in the renovation of the building, uh, moments in the archive, and those details that we were able to discover with the x-ray, all of those were put together in some way and organized through the exhibition initially and then through the book um, most recently. Yeah, it is a really good question. And I mean, I think that like the two just work really well together is kind of like 
I think the x-rays do something that even the perfect archive, right, can never do because like the archive really has its own materiality, um, its own tactility and its own kind of, you know, even space. And then I think what we really wanted to do with the x-ray was to understand a lot of these decisions that are, that can be read through the archive, really through the materiality of the building, through these spaces that, you know, often you kind of can't see um, within, I mean, literally behind the walls and kind of where a lot of these um, insertions, additions, subtractions, mm -hmm. decisions were being made that were kind of rendered invisible to the eye. And so maybe in that way, it's like an archive, like it's something that's like, you know, kind of unseen, um, on the surface. Yeah, so we wanted to kind of like find these moments in which you could, you would maybe typically see these buildings in conventional photography as mm. um, like a, a flat image, as kind of these heroic shots, something that's, you know, taken at a distance or composed in a certain way. And what the x-ray allows you to do um, is kind of see depth in this like strange way that correlates with um, you know, how radiation hits materials um, to kind of see the section, to see, you know, at a different scale because all of the x-rays are like one-to-one, -one, so you don't have, um, you know, the perspective or those things that like a photograph might have. Yeah, because like part of the project was also interested in how certain histories are made, like, and, and like how certain histories within the discipline are made and surround these, you know, iconic buildings. And it's not that we took one x-ray and it's not that we displayed a single x-ray in the exhibition. It's that there's a multitude. And, and so it's a project that somehow privileges details and I don't know, maybe seemingly banal kind of moments in buildings where mullions meet, um, meet different kind of mechanical connections. And, and, and so those, that privileging of banal details over a kind of, like what Caitlin was saying, like a synthetic grand sort of singular heroic photograph. And, and so something about that was also, I don't know, maybe opening up different histories in the buildings that had maybe been overlooked and maybe those moments had also been overlooked in the archive. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I think both were kind of grappling with this in different ways. Like I think in the case of Weisenhoff, right, what initially attracted us to the site was the idea that when UNESCO had put these two houses on the World Heritage List um, that are part of a, um, a mis the Weisenhof Siedlung, the Weisenhof Estate, which was built by, you know, a collaboration of all these well-known architects and that really saw a lot of, like, the politics of Weimar era Germany, Germany during World War II, Germany, you know, um, after World War II, like, all of that can really be read into the history of of this housing complex and even now how it's being restored and repaired and when it was damaged, when it was left in disarray. But UNESCO kind of sees this just as like, Le Corbusier is a genius, these buildings are really like amazing and he, this is like this singular heroic narrative of like an amazing architect. And so actually in that um, sort of paper trail of UNESCO, you don't see histories of any of the inhabitation of moments in which the building is actually kind of altered to look more like traditional and German during the 1940s and 50s, when those additions are then like taken off in the 1980s when modernism becomes, you know, a style that's seen as meriting preservation. So we were actually kind of looking for those moments of when you can see actually where things have changed because they've had to be like restored and you could only see that through x-rays. So in that case, maybe a more complete 
archive, you know, would have spoken to that. But I think this is also a way of like, even when you have that information, how do you then make it kind of visible and tangible um, in a different format to show that it's also still part of the building, like it's still kind of mm. within that architecture, like these histories are, are layered. Um, and then in the case of the UN, there's actually, you know, a lot that can't be in that archive because of <laughs> security risks. So there's like no product specifications. There's like, you know, all of the information we found at Weisenhof, we couldn't find at the UN because it's a security risk. So it's when it's questions like, you know, enhanced digital security, you're like, what does that mean? And so then you can actually kind of take an x-ray and you can see, you know, a whole new set of wiring and in these like old desks where they're like, the weird like vinyl has still been preserved, but now they're just like full of cables and you know, like all of this new fiber optics and stuff. So in that case, it was also like, yeah, kind of asking, okay, well, what do these things mean in a material sense that I think even, I guess they just complement each other well. Again, in the vein of media specificity, uh, both of these sets of x-rays and collections of documents were made initially for exhibitions, and a book is obviously a very different medium than an exhibition. Why choose to make a book about the project? Like, what does a, a book offer the project that an exhibition can't? Great question, and, and at some point in the second exhibition, we're making the exhibition and the book at the same time, and so that was like a, a very interesting moment to generally, I guess, traditionally you do the research maybe, you'll make the exhibition and then somehow some translation or theorization or unpacking of that potentially makes its way into a book or very quickly makes its way into a book as a catalogue or something that um, accompanies the exhibition. And so for us, uh, it wasn't totally linear. Somehow the second exhibition and the book came on and were produced at a very similar time. And I think what the book offered us was a moment of reflection to start to theorize um, some of what we had been doing, uh, which is really helpful because in a sense we were, you know, we weren't just looking at modern management methods, we were also inventing some method of our own. And, and that method was pairing electromagnetic imaging with archival assembly or uh, curation in some way. And, and so um, having a moment to kind of reflect and understand that and to uh, also engage a different set of voices and collaborators through um, the authors who are present in the book and uh, the editors who are part of that process like yourself and the, um, the designers who could also come and try to make um, help us with that uh, translation of the research we'd do, be doing into you know a, an argument that kind of transmits to a broad audience in some way. Yeah definitely I mean I think Barzin kind of summed it up really well and I would just want to reinforce, yeah, like both the ability for us to kind of think through the project in different ways, but also to really engage with other scholars and thinkers whose work had been informing, you know, the way we approached the project originally, like people we'd been in conversation with the whole time. So Oscar Arnorsen um, wrote like a really lovely essay about um, the, the UN library, which actually was not able to be part of this preservation project and kind of the relationship between um, the universalism of modern architecture at the time the UN was designed and the sort of humanist project and decolonization through the figure of Dog Hammarskjöld, who was like one of the, um, who was like the first secretary general of the UN, right? 
Um, and then Claire Zimmerman, who does like amazing work on the history of like architectural photography and modernism, wrote an essay looking at the UN sort of through that lens of photography. And Lucia Alley wrote this wonderful preface that's kind of so thinking through um, forensics and the kind of forensic image. So, I mean, bringing all of these kind of voices also into the book was just such an amazing opportunity and having and working with like such wonderful editors was also great. <laughs> shake it out, shake it out, shake it out. Um, last question. So Farzan alluded to this a little bit, but I, I wanted to ask more specifically, how do you, like, how does the book fit into the timeline of the project? Is the book like a culmination? Is this the like bow that ties everything up or does it launch the project into the next phase? Like what is the relationship between a book and the trajectory of the project? Yeah, I mean, that's also a good question. Um, Cause I do think there's a way in which bringing these two iterations of the project together um, through the book was really important in finding, you know, the kind of like resonances that allowed them to maybe speak to like broader themes and broader questions and, um, you know, to create a moment of reflection and of engagement around them. Um, but, you know, we definitely still X-ray another building. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think, yeah, it doesn't feel finished. I think, like, it's a good question because you've been part of it, right? And, and somehow... Uh, it it feels like there's parts of the project that we still don't totally understand that we're grappling with to a sense and 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 I think that is how the x-rays work on you in some way and and and, and so we kind of talk about the x-rays being somewhere between information and image right because that it has that depth that Caitlin spoke of it's like a novel section cut you can uh, extract uh, information about the volumetric details of what's um, you know what's appearing in the image but it also has a haunting kind of rhetoric that also works on you and it has that history of diagnostic kind of authority that also works on you and, and so something about that and and the fact that we insisted on a multitude of details 40 x-rays in Weissenhof, uh close to 98 in the in the UN and, and so we're that diminishes from their singular kind of image authority in some way because they're kind of part of a collective of images. And, and so something about that is what we're kind of grappling with. The fact that there is what the project set out to do, that it did that, and the book argues for that, um, and how the project, how the material sort of uh, output of the project affects you in some other way. And so I think like that's something that we're still working with in some way. And then, yeah, like the book seemed like a really nice moment to understand that, but to continue to keep working on that. Yeah, so it doesn't feel like a bookend. I don't know. Book beginning. <laughs> this podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.